Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to be with you this morning. We're kind of resetting up here a little bit. I didn't want to trip over everything. Um, I'm sure you would enjoy that. I would not. Uh, but it is so good to be with you. There is something super special about um, two churches coming together. And even that last song, I don't think either of our communities have sung that song before. And I'll tell you, that was the first time, that's how I memorized scripture, was through song. And so that song was just perfect. I was like, oh, I know Psalm 23, there it is. So um, to the moms here today and to those watching online with us, I just want to wish you a very happy Mother's Day and just say thank you for all that you invest and give to your families. I also want to recognize that this day comes with some you know, tensions, and it's a little weird because some of you this last year have lost your moms or um, there has been loss in your family that it just kind of brings back that moment. Uh, there are many who have uh, just chosen in their life not to choose to mother, but still choose to give birth and bless other families with those children. And we still recognize you. Some of you, you've stepped in as a motherly figure without ever having gone through any of the process to invest in so many around you. So wherever you are, ladies, I just want to say thank you so much, so much for demonstrating and looking like God for us and that we could see a glimpse of who he is through you. So just thank you, thank you, thank you this morning. We, we do honor you. And I, I said before, I love when we get to partner together as a church, um, that one church. It's two communities, one body of Christ. And, and I just love this. Uh, I, I think it was two or three weeks ago, I was out playing disc golf with a, and disc golf is a thing, it's you throw frisbees into baskets. Um, if you're looking at me like, that's wrong. No, 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 I'll do anything with the name golf in it. Um, we were out playing disc golf and I was with um, one of my great friends and I asked him just straight up, I said, you know, this year, what's been the highlight of your year at Crossbridge? Like, what's one thing we did that you were like, that was the best? And he goes, oh, without hesitation. When we partnered with Grace and, and we did that, you know, comparison series together, easily the best moment. I was like, thanks. <laughs> I, I couldn't have been more thankful that, and I know this from, you know, the grace community too. When two churches, two communities come together, I believe God's glorified in that. And that we could respect each other's dignity and honor and, you know, churches while still being one. And I just love that we get to do this. Dave, I cannot wait till next week. I know what you're preaching on. And I'm like, oh, that's yours. Um, <laughs> you know, we picked a series again that I know will be a little bit pressing for us. And it wasn't with a, an agenda to push one church or the other. So I just simply need to tell you that. And if you are a guest with us, this is abnormal that we have our churches combining. This isn't what every week looks like for either of our churches. But regardless, we're grateful that you're here and part of this uh, time, the next four weeks together. And so wherever you find yourself today in your faith, all I simply hope for is that you would be able to take one step towards Jesus because that is what we are all about at both churches, is going after Jesus. As we finished our last series through this idea of comparison, I began to wonder for a little bit and thank God for the church overall, the church as a whole and who we are together. And not just like 
Grace and Crossbridge, but like the big C church. You know what I mean when I say that? Like the church over the globe that too often we don't think about. We all just think about these little C churches. And I was just amazed, and I thank God for this community and this gathering of disciples of Jesus all around. And I was reminded afterwards about how much Jesus loves his church, how much Jesus loves his church. And just to kind of remind us this morning as we go into this series, I like the way the Apostle Paul puts it to his favorite church in Ephesus. He writes about how much Jesus loves his church. And I just want to remind you of that before we jump in. And it's found in Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. And I do understand that this is geared towards like husbands and stuff like that, but you'll understand. It says this, starting in verse 25, for husbands, this means love your wives. And this is, means uh, submit to one another. So he's talking about submission here. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she would be holy and without fault. Jesus loves his church so much that he gave his life for them. And not just that, his hope was that this community, that all of his followers would be pure, that we would be holy, that we would be without blemish or wrinkle or stain. And I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. I love that you love the church, Jesus. I love that you love these people. And then as I stepped back, I thought, uh-oh. Is this what the church looks like today? Jesus, your bride, do we, do we look like this? And throughout history, I think if I'm being honest, if we look at the church, big C, not Grace, not Crossbridge, but we look at the church, we have been plagued with fault. We have covered our wrinkles. We're full of blemishes. And, and as his bride, I feel like we've tried to apply so much makeup to make ourselves look better, and in the process, it's only caused more pain. Instead of addressing the hurt, it now just turns to hurting others. And I have a feeling this morning that if you've ever been part of a church community, or you've interacted with anyone who's been a part of church, that you've been hurt by them. I'm going to take a moment of transparency here. If, if you're watching with us online and you're virtual with us right now, and for those in person, you've been hurt by the church in some way, shape, or form. And I, I'm going to put two hands up here. Uh, so I will lead you in this. Just put it high. So, and now look around it for a second. Yeah, look at it. We're all hurt. Isn't that awesome? It's the church's fault. And the truth is, if you're part of the church, it's partly your fault too. Partly my fault. Those wounds, they may be very deep, and they could have been there for decades as you've chosen to follow Jesus. And for some of you, they may be fresh and they may be new. They may be caused by Crossbridge or by Grace because we are imperfect churches. That's part of the process. I get it. And I think that we can all agree that for a group of people who declare to follow Jesus in loving the world, loving our communities, committing to his teachings— that the church has left this trail of pain in its wake that is huge. 
And I don't say this to throw the church under the bus. I, at the core of who I am, I love the church. I love this expression of Jesus' love for us. And I do see the potential for it to hurt. But I also believe that there's nowhere that we could find the healing that we need in life outside of the church and the community that God has, his bride, for the world. So for the next four weeks, Grace, Crossbridge, we're in this together, okay? If we've been part of the church, we're probably part of the problem. And so here's the deal. We're going to agree to this. There's no pointing fingers at each other, okay? There's no pointing fingers at another denomination, another expression of faith, another this, another that. We're going to pause for a second and just, just look at us. Look at you. Because the truth is we're really good at pointing fingers, aren't we? We're really good at pointing fingers. And, and I love this. Um, we're really good at this in our culture. And we love to point fingers. That really, there's, there's a highlight here. You ready? What do you call it? And if you're with us virtually here, I want you to throw this into the comments really quick. And then I'm going to ask them. What do you call it when someone says one thing but then does something else? Hold on to your answer for a second. I want to give them a shot online. When someone says one thing, but then does something completely opposite. All right, give it to me. Look at you. You all nailed that real quick. There, we know this, don't we? That, that we call them hypocrites. It's hypocrisy. Nothing else gets our blood boiling or flowing online, especially when, than when we see hypocrites. It's interesting to me how we as a culture, we celebrate hypocrites, right? We elevate them, put them on a pedestal so that we can take them out. We love to put people on full blast so that everyone can see what we see with the inconsistencies of their life. But very, very few of us, I think, are self-aware enough to look at our own hypocrisy. We love to point it out in others, but in doing that, we never see what's in our own life. And we go on this hunt for people to say, look how horrible they are. And I think we do that so that eyes go to them because we really fear that what happens if the eyes are on me? In one way or another, can I just call it for what it is? We are all hypocrites. You can amen that. I know you don't want to. Amen as I agree. We're all hypocrites in one way or another. I just wonder if we're self-aware enough to see it. If we look back at the church and this wake that we've left, I think hypocrisy is a huge part of that inside and outside of the church. Many of us, if you've been part, you, you've received that shaming finger. I know that that there's been someone in a leadership position who's pointed at you to tell you about your sin and how wrong you are, and it hurts because it's done out of shame. And, and then there's nothing worse than like, you know, however long later it comes out that whoever that leader was was struggling with this massive sin that was never addressed, and you're like, yo, you called me on my stuff. But yours was like, you, you didn't deal with your stuff. That's not fair. That's the worst. And it's not just inside the church. Um, the Barna Group about 15 years ago did a survey with 
um, non-Christians, those who do not adhere to the Christian faith. And it was a huge undertaking. And when they went through this survey, they asked them, what is it about Christianity that you don't want to be a part of? And as they unpacked this, um, it, it floored me that of the top six answers they gave, none of them had to do with the history of Jesus or the fact that he existed or any of his teachings. They all had to do with the behavior of Christians. And 85% of those surveyed said hypocrisy in the church is the reason I'm not interested in Christianity. 85%. Hypocrisy doesn't just hurt us. It actually hurts those outside the church as well. So how do we deal with this? How do we address it? And I know that it's probably uncomfortable to even say that. But it's not new. And I should probably tell you that as well. Like, hypocrisy is not new. This isn't something for us that we're like, oh, this is our sin that we need to deal with. Um, it's existed for a very long time. And if you, you know, look throughout the Old Testament, those first 39 books, the Jewish scriptures of our Bible, God is not happy with hypocrisy. And he continues to send prophets and priests to call out the nation of Israel saying, you say one thing, do another. Stop that. You're better than this. No one's going to look at you and find hope. They're going to be frustrated with you. Stop. And then as we turn the page from Malachi into Matthew, God's opinion towards hypocrisy has not changed. If anything, I believe that it gets a little bit stronger through the person of Jesus as he walks this earth as God incarnate, seeing the development of the church in its infancy and what could happen, and it breaks his heart. And, and if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you, if you would turn with me to the biography of Jesus written by Matthew. And uh, it'll be the first book in your New Testament. And this biography, Matthew is a tax collector who has chosen to follow Jesus. So I'm sure he's caught some heavy shade from the Jewish tradition of faith at that point about how he's a sellout. And they've pointed out all sorts of things, but he's found this hope with Jesus. And so he writes this biography all from the lens of to the Jewish people, but understanding he doesn't quite fit in. And when we look at what this uh, chapter 23 it's important to note that what we're about to read is about two to three days, if you will, before Passover or before what we would call the Last Supper. So this is right at the end of Jesus's ministry. And he has, for three years, done everything he can to teach about love, forgiveness, compassion. And it's been beautiful. But in this time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are the two, like, uh, most professional law teachers of the Jewish faith. These are the guys who ran the nation, basically. They've been trying to trip Jesus up over and over. They've been trying to catch him on the law and show that he's not who he says he is. So when we get to 23 and you're like, yo, that seems strong. Like, Jesus is right at him. This doesn't come out of nowhere, okay? They've been coming at him for a while and he's kind of just kicking it back a little bit. But he's about to lay it in, and I, I know it's strong. So we're going to jump around in this passage a little bit. So if you like to go straight through, I apologize. It's a huge chapter. So let's jump in. Um, in chapter 23, starting in verse 1, it says this. 
Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, uh, I should tell you he's been addressing the Pharisees before. Now there's a crowd gathered. That's who he's going after. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Jesus, he's had words with the Pharisees and for three years, nothing has changed. And now he turns to the crowd and, and he's like, guys, I, I'm just going to be straight with you. I think he knows time is coming to a close. This is his last week. And he's like, if I'm going to lay something out, I need to lay this out for you so you know the law of Moses, this, these laws that we adhere to as a nation, they're really important. And these guys teaching it actually do know what's in here. They know this. And so you should listen. But do me a favor. Don't do what they're doing because that's a nightmare. They're actually using this law to crush you and to burden you. Do what they say, not what they do. He doesn't downplay the law, does he? He doesn't say this is irrelevant, it's no good. He just says that, listen, I know that they know, but it's not impacting their hearts or who they are at all. So you, you could listen. They, they've got this but they don't have this. They know this, but they don't understand this. You should pretty much listen and then go do your thing based on what it is. Why? Because simply, what do you call people who say one thing and do another? Come on, you can say it louder than that. Hypocrites. He's calling them out for their hypocrisy, and all of their hypocrisy is going to be rooted in their pride because the truth is they thought they were better than everyone else around them. They had spent the time studying, and they continued to hold up the law to push the rest of the people down to elevate themselves to those who didn't understand it, keep them outside so that they had the power and control inside, and they used this as a weapon, not an invitation and they could hold the law over people's heads, but there was one person they couldn't, and that was Jesus. And when they went to go hold the law over his head, he continued to say, yeah, I know you say those things, and he would ask questions that revealed their heart, and they didn't like that. And so over and over, it makes sense that they're trying to kill him because he was pulling their power by taking their, or pulling punches to their pride by taking power away from them. And Jesus, at this point, has had it with the abuse of the law and with religion. If we jump down to verse 13, we're going to see that there's going to be a series of statements that Jesus makes that starts with woe or sorrow. So if you have your Bibles, um, it's going to say either seven woes or eight woes. Um, and, and I know that it's like, can people not count? There is a reason for it, and, and we'll talk about it in a second. But whatever yours says, it's fine. Okay, I promise. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, it starts with, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. Now, we don't use the words like sorrow and woe, like Jesus is using here. Um, we don't say woe to you. That, that sounds like you should be on a pirate ship or something, right? It just doesn't match. But if you go into the Greek here, this word for sorrow or woe carries with the feeling of it... Um, it, it, it kind of has the, 
the emotion of destruction, like destruction on you or horror on you, that there is a penalty coming, a scare coming because of the behavior that follows. Woe to you. Like, he's telling them that these disasters and horrors are going to lay beyond them. And then he's going to explain the behavior, okay? We're going to look um, just at a couple of these, and I'm going to summarize others. So if you're a note taker and you have your Bibles, you could just write in the margins for this. And if you're like, but he skipped like, I'm going to. Just, we don't have time, all right? Let's finish verse 13 here. We'll go through it. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law, Pharisees, hypocrites? For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. They've shut up the kingdom. That feels weird, doesn't it? Like, how do you do that? Well, in their pride, do you know what the Pharisees have been doing? They were elevating certain parts of the law that they knew benefited them, and not adhering to the whole thing and downplaying what was going to benefit those without power. They would shut the door to not allow people to experience all that the law could bring, the freedom that the Old Testament could bring. They only talked about what benefited them. That is hypocrisy, and Jesus is not going to have it. Let's jump to verse 14. In your Bibles, how many of you have verse 14 there? You may have been shocked really quick to go, wait, my Bible skips a verse. It goes 13 to 15. Like, did, did someone take it out? Here's why it's seven or eight woes. This one isn't always included in this passage simply because it's not in uh, many of the newer manuscripts that they're finding. And so they continue to update our translations based on great um, archaeological research, and th- it's wonderful. But if you take verse 14 out, it's okay simply because in Mark chapter 12, and I believe it's Luke chapter 20, it's listed there in a set of woes. So I feel like it's important to mention it. And if you don't have it, you could write it in your margins. But verse 14 is this woe, this sorrow, this horror to the Pharisees because they have become devourers. And it's like, are they hungry? They're hungry for money and they find widows. And they basically extort them. They tell them how they're going to use this money for God. And these widows in their deep pain continue to give to the church, if you will. And the Pharisees take that money and they use it for themselves. They use it to further what they want. And they're preying on the weak and the vulnerable. This is hypocrisy. That's not what they're supposed to do. And Jesus calls it out. In in verse 15, You'll see that he says, woe and sorrow. You're willing to travel all the way and brag about how you can create a convert to your faith. But the problem is, when you do that, they're like half a convert. He's he's pushing them on the fact that, again, they're not teaching the full breadth of Scripture, but at the same time, they want to pad their numbers. So they'll say what they need to say to have a bigger following. They'll say what they need to say to fill the seats in the synagogue, but never address the real issues that Scripture brings to the table. It's rooted in pride. You can make whatever assumption you want to about the church on that one, but Jesus calls it out. He's not having it. In verses 16 to 22, um, he calls them out on what they value, and this one will sum up as well. Uh, He talks about them making deals, okay? And he says that, you know, a lot of times you make a bargain and you promise you make this deal 
and you swear over the gold in the temple, not on the temple itself. Your worship, which should be in the temple towards God, has become a focus on business and what deals you're making with each other. You have devalued God to value possessions, and this is what you look at as your idol and your God. Woe to you for looking at the best things that you could acquire and forgetting who gave these things to you to begin with. Your worship and your eyes are wrong. They're in the wrong place. It's become about business. He's calling them out for their greed and putting their trust in the stuff over God. This is hypocrisy. Jesus calls it out. Let's read um, verses 23 and 24. Uh, I, I love this. What sorrow or woe to you, what horror, what disaster awaits you teachers of the religious law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. Your translation may actually list some really tiny herbs. But you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides. You strain your water so that you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. <laughs> Just a weird picture, isn't it? Jesus, in this, I don't know if you've picked it up, he elevated one part of the law over another. He's not saying all these rules are equal. He's saying there's a law here that you're missing and you're focusing on something that's, that's less important than more important. And he, he kind of addresses this idea of like, yes, you tithe. And that is good, giving 10%. But what's funny is, is they're dividing out the leaves. It's almost like counting the leaves of your rosemary sprig to give that back to the temple. And like, how much time is it going to take to count your sprig so that you make sure God gets what's his? That feels like you're trying to just get to 10% when he's like, Dude, just, just break off a piece and give it because there's more important things that you're missing. You're so focused on the leaves of herbs that you're missing that there is just injustice around you, that there is a lack of faith, that there is absolutely no mercy being demonstrated from you because your eyes are on the tiny, not on the big thing. Oh, Pharisees, woe to you. And that dig at the end, that little gnat camel thing, um, it's, it's really funny. I, I love the Bible. Oh, I love the Bible. And when you know the whole Bible, you kind of see where Jesus, especially if you know the Old Testament, you see where Jesus kind of does one of these little like, psh, psh, psh. we don't pick it up, but he's always doing this to the Pharisees. In Leviticus chapter 11, those books that we always skip over because you're like, I don't really need rules on what I need to eat. I'm not going to eat insects. Like in Leviticus chapter 11, there's a portion of it where you're not supposed to eat and gnats are listed, and camels are listed. And, you know, he's kind of pointing at him saying, you're so focused on these tiny little things that you're drinking the big things. I don't know how camel water gets camel in it or what a camel-sized strainer looks like. Do you have that? I don't know. Um, but what I do know is Jesus is like, you're so concerned with these tiny things, you're still swallowing massive injustices and sin in your life, things that I disapprove of, and you're doing nothing about it, and it's hypocrisy, and he calls them out. Then in 25 to 28, it's a familiar passage. Woe to you. Oh, my gosh, you spend so much time 
washing the outside of the cup, but inside it's moldy, it's nasty, it's disgusting. You, you look like a whitewashed tomb. We don't really understand what this means, but it, it's like you look like a crazy decorated tombstone. And everybody comes to honor that, but it simply is there to cover up the death that's underneath, this rotting that's in your soul. And, and he's not joking. Like, you could look great, but inside it's a mess. And you're trying to be elevated in front of people. And his last sorrow is really about you have taken this law, you've taken these rules, and you've become persecutors and murderers to people. You have beaten them up so much with what God has intended for us to find hope in, and you've destroyed them with this. And he uses a phrase that should terrify us. He calls them children of the devil. This is who's leading the church. Those who are persecuting others, not loving others. And, and it's hypocrisy. He's not going to have it. He's pretty strong with this, isn't he? Can we just exhale really quick? Because I, like, I don't know if you felt that on you. Like I felt it. I was like, oh, I do that one. I do that one. What do we do with this? I think Jesus is so strong on this. Simply because three years ago, he was strong on what it means to be blessed and happy. He was strong on creating a context for the new church that was developing that it doesn't have to, we don't have to use this as a hammer to destroy people, but there is happiness, pleasure, joy, and freedom that can be found in a very different way. And he was right up front about what he said. And so if you would, you're in Matthew chapter 23, just go back 18 chapters and we're in Matthew chapter 5. And this is the beginning of a great series of uh, three chapters that we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus is sitting and he's teaching his disciples and he's teaching his you know, followers like, listen, if I could sum up everything I'm going to say for the next three years in one spot, here's kind of where it is. Here, here's where I want you to find that. And so if you're ever going to spend time in scripture reading and you don't know where to go, don't do this thing and you're like, Lord, speak to me. Just go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You cannot go wrong. The words of Jesus, you cannot go wrong. He says, I want you to be blessed, and I want you to be blessed, and here's how, and we call these the Beatitudes. We call these the Beatitudes. So what I'd like to do is to read these together, but would you stand with me as we read these together? In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, it says this, and see if you could pick up on what Jesus is saying is blessed and think about what he just laid the woe down on, Okay. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. Your Bible may say that they are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. Or righteousness is that word, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, 
for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You may be seated. That's so good, isn't it? So different from what we just read. So different from what we just read. And what's wild is if you take this and you put Matthew 5 and Matthew 23 right next to each other, every blessing that he has is a woe that he actually lays down on the church of that time and says, I've given you a path to happiness in, it's not in pride. It's not in justifying yourself. It's actually in giving your life away for others, fighting for justice and mercy, the poor, the meek. And you elevate yourself and steal from others. Even that first one, do you remember he says, um, the Sermon on the Mount, when he looks and says, the proud in chapter 23, you close the kingdom of God to people. You, you withhold from them. But those we know who are poor in spirit, who are desperately looking for God and have nothing, they're actually going to inherit the kingdom. They're totally opposite. Jesus talks about when you are mourning, you will be comforted. But what do we find the Pharisees doing when you are mourning? We will devour your money and get it from you. That's not walking with them. And Jesus is saying, I have something better for you. And it goes on and on. Go home and compare them. It's beautiful. When we look at Matthew 5, Jesus addresses our heart. And I think a lot of our hypocrisy that we are dealing with in the church today that we've dealt with forever in all faith-based communities is simply, it's, it's easier to try to look good for everybody else and not deal with the garbage in our own life. And Jesus is saying, I don't care that you look great to people. I don't care that your behavior matches up with whatever your community tells you proper behavior looks like because you could do all the right things in your heart could be so far from me. You could show up to everything the church does but still never have a trust that Jesus is working on your inward life and you find your identity in producing and doing and going and he's like, I just I want you to actually look like me. It breaks my heart because I truly think the woes of 23 could be said to the church today. I, I feel like some of the things that Jesus has said there, they're a disaster or horror waiting for me, and it's been very difficult this week preparing. God, where am I using your word to, to beat people or where am I not unpacking everything? And I will say, I know that at Crossbridge, you know that we'll talk about anything and everything. At Grace, you do too. Your last series, when you hit week three and Pastor Dave came up here with like super high blood pressure, freaking out, going, how do I approach this stuff? That's someone who's faithful to preach the whole word of God, not just what's comfortable. Thanks, man. Thanks. This is what we need. But too often I worry we're so focused on pleasing everyone around us, trying to make ourselves look better, and we never address what's in us. If Jesus loves his bride so much that he's given his life up for us, why is it that as his bride we're getting ready with the guests 
or the groomsmen in mind and never the groom? Why is it that we spend so much time trying to pretty up to impress everybody else and never have the groom in mind? We've all watched a a bridezilla piece where, you you know that lady who's getting ready with everybody else in mind that my pictures matter? You know, is this going to look right? And you're like, oh my gosh, are you getting married? Or like, are you excited about marriage? This seems like it's freaking you out. Why does the church look like bridezilla? Caring about everything else around us and never our groom who says, I've given everything for you. The best weddings are the one where the bride is ready for the groom. No one else in mind. And you know those weddings when they stare at each other and you're thinking, it doesn't matter if there's 10 or 10,000 people in this room. Those eyes, they're the only two people here. And so my question for us in this hypocrisy of when the church hurts us is, where is your place in this? Where have you and I, as individuals who follow Jesus, said one thing, done something else, And instead of trying to pretty up the outside of our cup, our church, our communities, actually letting the Holy Spirit fill us on the inside and say, I I could clean that, and not hiding it. Could you imagine, could you imagine if South Jersey or wherever it is that you're watching right now from found disciples of Jesus who were actually okay with admitting their sin? saying, my cup's messy. Actually, it's not just messy. I I dropped it while I was walking, and it's been shattered, and then we put it back together, and then it's been shattered again and put back together again, and instead of trying to look all pretty, they got to see how messed up we really were. And I know you're thinking, but how would that look good for the church? It doesn't but it looks good for our groom who has continued to stand at the altar waiting for us, who loves us so great that says, I can love you in your pain and I can comfort you in your sorrows. And when he meets us in our pain and it's not hidden from others, when anyone else is in pain, who do you think they're going to go to? The person who's pretended to be perfect or has admitted their garbage and said, but my redeemer walks with me. They're going to come to you. And you're not waiting for Sunday to bring them to church so they could discover Jesus in your kitchen, at your grill, or in your apartment. They discover Jesus because he's ministered to you and now you minister to them. And the church becomes a place where we celebrate and don't have to pretend because you're messed up. And you're messed up and you're led by two very messed up pastors and staffs. And that's okay because when you come into that, Jesus brings healing, and so I dream of a church that no longer hides. That we would live out Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in these happiness of persecution, because if we look like Jesus, Jesus was hated by his community, wasn't he? There was those who just said, the way you live is so offensive. And today, if 85% of people surveyed said it's the hypocrisy of the church, they already don't like us, why don't we let them not like us because we look like Jesus, not because we're pretending to? We're not going to be liked, so why not err on love and being rolled over, not standing up all of the time and just taking it on the chin like Jesus did, and when we've been fully crucified by our culture, saying, God, forgive them, I don't think they know what they're doing instead of waiting to shame them with fingers 
and elevate their hypocrisy when we're sitting in a stew of our own. Let's be broken together. Let's eliminate hypocrisy by not hiding it and saying, I have failed here, and now I walk with Jesus. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you have no idea of what that means, and I, I want to tell you that he has forgiven you wherever you are. Whatever pain and whatever destruction has happened in your life and you're thinking, but I, I don't know if I could, you know, if he would love me where I'm at, I'm telling, oh, yes, he will. Because he loves me where I'm at. And if you look to the right and to the left, he loves them where they're at. And if you look at any house that you drive by, he loves those people so much that he gave his life for them so that they would be blameless and pure and says, I want them as my bride. And he loves you. And so if you've not placed your trust in Jesus this morning, I just want to give you a moment to do that and say, God, I feel like I've been pretending so much and I've never really trusted that you would love the mess inside. I'm done pretending. And so if that's where you are this morning, would you just pray with me real quick? And there's nothing special or, um, you know, like you find this prayer in the Bible, but this is, sometimes it's just helpful to have someone else's words to pray. And so would you join me in praying this morning? Jesus, I need you. I am a mess. And I deserve disaster and horror. But your grace has saved me. Your death has gained me life. And I'm done pretending. Holy Spirit, would you fill me? Would you wash the inside? <laughs> and when I put dirt in my cup again, would you fill me again overflowing? Would you allow my brokenness to be an invitation to the broken? As your death is an invitation for me. I love you, Jesus, and I trust you. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, um, whichever community you're from, and we're probably going to mess up when we use the words community and church, and I'm going to try to use communities because today we sit as one church, um, two communities, one church. And so we'll probably mess that up. But whichever community that you find yourself in, if you've prayed that prayer, would you do me a favor? Just talk to Pastor Dave, talk to myself, and if what we're talking about brings up some issues for you, I recognize that it could kind of poke some nerves, and if you're from Grace, do me a favor. Don't come to me and be like, that message, you know, I need to talk to you about it, simply because I'm not walking with you for life. But I know that Pastor Dave is here, and he's walking with you. You could trust him. If you're from Crossbridge, you could come talk to me. I would love to walk with you, to pray with you. And if there's a moment or an area here where you see hypocrisy in my life, would you tell me so that I can ask for forgiveness from you? I know that this, I've messed up here. I get it. Let me know so that we can work through this together. Because I know the church hurts. But this is the one place we're going to find healing. Amen? Amen. Dave, thanks for the privilege of doing this together. I'm going to pass it to you to close us out. Amen. Amen. What a challenging, encouraging word. Amen. Amen. Amen.
And that picture, uh, this is what's going to stick with me this week, that picture of preparing for the wedding, right? And how easy it is to focus on all those small little details and all the stuff that can cause drama, and then we don't focus on the actual groom. Man, but we struggle with that as a church sometimes, don't we? And I'm so glad we're going through this series. Anyone excited this, this week? It, listen, the church needs to talk about this stuff, Amen. Amen. If we're going to find healing in some of the stuff we've been through, the church needs to talk about this stuff. So I'm encouraged. Um, Pastor Jimmy, um, thanks for giving me week two next week. And uh, the church is going to be excited to hear that. Uh, It's going to be a challenging one, but I'm excited. Let's stand here together, two communities, one church here. I'd encourage you as well, again, if you've been uh, visiting us here this morning or visiting online, please stop and say hello Uh, to either me or Pastor Jimmy here this morning. Write something in the chat if you're watching online and say hello to Grace and to Crossbridge. Uh, If you're uh, giving here, if if you'd like to give financially to Grace Church here this morning, uh, we do have a drop box on my office, so that's hands-free where you can give an offering there. We do also have online giving. Crossbridge, I know you've been doing a lot of your giving online as well, so please don't forget to do that when you leave here. Uh, this morning. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed here today. Father God, Lord, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you. God, I thank you for two churches that are willing to dig into the hard stuff. God, I thank you that even though in our experiences we may have experienced some hurt from the church, from people in the church, from the church as a whole, God, that we can find healing in the church as well. God, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you loved your son so much, that he loved his bride so much that he was willing to go to the cross to die. God, and through the shedding of his blood that we can find forgiveness. God, I pray this morning that if somebody has not surrendered their life to Jesus, God, that you would let them know those very simple things, that he loves you, that because of their sin, they've been separated from a loving God, but Jesus is the bridge the bridge to bring, to bring them back to you. Father, I pray that they would call on the name of the Lord here this morning. God, I pray as we continue in this series and as we leave this place here this morning that we'd be a light into a dark world. God, let, allow us to find healing through your word and through the church over these next few weeks. God, we love you. We praise you. We pray all this in the church. We pray all this in Jesus' name and the church says, Amen. Amen. God bless y'all. Have a great week.